This episode of Long Reads is supported by the Left Book Club. It's a non-profit club with reading groups and events for a list of books that explore radical alternatives to capitalism. You can join the Left Book Club for just £6 a month. That's less than $8. You can also buy someone a gift membership. Listeners to this podcast will get their first month free by going to leftbookclub.com and using the code WINFREE with all letters capitalised. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The Dutch Revolt of the 16th century defeated the Spanish monarchy, the great European superpower of its day. It may not be as well remembered as the English Civil War or the French Revolution, but it was a watershed moment in the development of modern Europe. Our guest today is Pepin Branden. He's an historian at VU University in Amsterdam and the author of War, Capital and the Dutch State. This is the second part of a two-part interview. Pepin spoke about the events of the Dutch Revolt in part one. We're now going to talk about its long-term consequences for Dutch and European history. What kind of state and society was the Dutch Republic that emerged from the revolt? That question brings us right to the heart of these uh, ancient debates on um, whether or not you have something that's called a bourgeois revolution, where I have been influenced a lot by my um, late and great friend, um, Neil Davidson, who basically goes back to these debates where Many have, I think, rightly said, so if you imagine a bourgeois revolution or a sort of the the capitalist revolution as this moment when sort of the rich and wealthy go into the streets and sort of uh, (laughs) make a revolution um, to establish their state, there, there has never been such a phenomenon in history. It never occurred. But then... The argument was sort of the that bourgeois nature of these sort of revolts lies in their outcome. And I think the Dutch revolt actually in, in many ways illustrates that very well in the sense that there's, I don't think there's anyone who doubts that the Dutch state that grew out of the revolt was the most commercially oriented state of Europe by the end of the 16th or beginning of the 17th uh, century, that it was merchant capitalists, if you will, sort of rich traders who had a overbearing influence within the state who actually made arrangements for them to organize many of the tasks of the state, including many aspects of warfare and colonial conquest, organize them as public-private ventures for which they expected to see uh, a return in the form of profits, but a state that very, very, very self-consciously identified the interests of state with interests of trade. Now, whether that sort of in alone is enough to define this as a capitalist state, that is sort of a, uh, a further discussion, which we might still come to. But in any case, the revolt created merchant power within the state and urban power at an unprecedented scale and a kind of sort of independent power of these social groups that would not have been ever possible 
within the confines of an absolutist monarchical feudal state. Right? So in that sense, the revolt breaks really new terrain. But in some ways, I think um, we're very, very trained to see these moments from a purely national trajectory. And um, I must say, sort of, uh, as a form of criticism, that, that uh, many schools of Marxism have done a lot over the decades to consolidate that sort of belief that we are looking basically and are essentially at national trajectories. So, first, we look at the basic uh, social and economic structure. We look whether within the confines of that national territory, there is the elements of the capitalist developments. Then we try to sort of connect the revolt with certain elements of that capitalist development. And then you look at whether the outcome, whether that matches your criteria of a capitalist uh, state and a capitalist society. And I think that is quite a limiting perspective in the sense that uh, I think we really need to have a more long durée, a more sort of long-term approach to this, where there is a sort of centuries-long development of important political and social and economic tears within the fabric of, um, of feudal society, which then, at an increasing pace, creates the openings for experiments in new forms of statehood and experiments in new forms of social organization that might be tried at sort of a very local scale in the first place and then by the 16th and early 17th century really translates into the politics of, uh, can translate into the politics of an entire state like the, the, the Dutch Republic. But that's an incremental Break. It's not a break with all sort of earlier practices at the same um, time. The urban particularism of the uh, the previous uh, age is largely retained, but it's combined with sort of very new elements, especially with an orientation on world trade and empire that is in essence and, and entirely new. So I would see what have been described as sort of the classical bourgeois uh, revolutions, so, um, well, some would count the Dutch among that, some uh, some won't, but then the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which consolidated parliamentary rule in, the, um, in, in, in England, the French Revolution, the American uh, Revolution up to the American Civil War, I see that as a sort of a very long drawn out struggle for sort of different forms of social organization, which in the end culminate in international capitalism. Looking at Dutch history in particular against that wider European and North American backdrop, what role would you say the revolt played, if any, in the development of Dutch capitalism? I don't think there's anyone who would see sort of these kind of events as um, harbingers of capitalist development in their own right. It's in the very nature of capitalism as a sort of privatized market relationship that this develops largely outside of the state. And it it developed in many parts of the world, I would say, at the point where the role of um, money, commerce, etc. was no longer just in regulating 
trade between disparate areas, but where it became connected to localized systems of production that were sort of fully market-driven, commercialized, where people's work or people's labor was mediated through the market, where sort of the the buying and selling of land was mediated through the market and competition. Now, that story is often very exclusively attached to England, but I, I don't believe that that is uh, that that is correct. I think that sort of those kind of sort of relations developed in many places, including certainly in the uh, late medieval uh, medieval uh, Low Countries, but enmeshed within a political structure that still favored trade, commerce, and its protection only up to a certain certain point and, and tended to subject that to sort of the political motives of nobility, the state, um, monarchies, etc. The importance of the Dutch revolt is that in that sort of commercialized, uh, already very uh, uh, commercialized area, it creates a state that has sort of this form of accumulation of wealth, this sort of getting rich through um, trade and competition inscribed in its, in its, in its very being. And I think that that, that is um, an enormously accelerating factor. And it becomes an accelerated, that it becomes an accelerated factor, I think, can be seen very well in two outgrowths of the Dutch revolt that occur both really at this very moment that from a revolution with much influence for spontaneous uprisings from below, this becomes much more a struggle waged by a state with a regular army funded through urban taxation and loans by wealthy wealthy merchants. So right at this moment, at the 1580s, you get an acceleration of accumulation, I think, at two interrelated fronts. And much of my research, I would say, incidentally, in the last uh, 10 years has been more on sort of this outcome than on the revolt itself. And these sort of interlinked fronts is that, first of all, the um, ongoing warfare becomes a major factor in dispossessing independent commercial peasants, commercially producing peasants in um, the peripheral provinces, driving them off the land because simply they cannot sustain themselves as commercial peasant households when your crop is burnt and you cannot go to a town to sell anything, or when one of the major war weapons is inundation where sort of the land is flooded for six years or, or uh, for, for, for a year and then takes six years to be suitable for agriculture again. So these independent peasants massively go bankrupt and land is bought up by the very same urban elites that fund the Dutch armies. And this happens at an incredible, incredible scale and a brutal scale. There is um, one researcher, Leo Arianza, who for the for a region in um, the southern borderlands of the current day Netherlands, around uh, the city of uh, Den Bosch, actually says that two thirds of the um, rural population was either killed or fled in a very short period there in the 1570s, 15, uh, 1580s. That it is massive depopulation 
of the countryside, and then land is bought up. So this, I would say, is a, is a classical form of original accumulation, but it happens to be not one that Marx, is, Marx discusses. But you have here an original form of expropriation on a, on a mass scale, whereby what doesn't change is that agriculture was already commercial, but it now, it's now becomes organized on a far grander scale in the constructions of uh, tenancy by local farmers who pay rent to urban uh, urban elites and urban land holding, com- urban commercial land holding becomes a dominant factor in the countryside of Holland, Zeeland and many other, many other places in the Dutch Republic. So that is one accelerator that is created, not sort of intentionally, but as sort of a major outcome of the revolt. The other one, is that this newly confident state with its own army and nature started to challenge Habsburg rule as just a competing power. It needed a, a first approximately a decade to secure the outer borders of, um, of the newly born state itself. But once it had largely done that, started to bring the war where it really counted and where it really hurt <laughs> Uh, the uh, Iberian um, powers, which is to their colonial empire. So the war very quickly turned into a war for, not just a war for independence, but a war for empire and uh, colonization as well, which the Dutch first did with great success in Asia and then also carried over into the uh, Atlantic world, making the Dutch effectively into the major world power of the 17th um, century until late in that century. I think that is significant because I see a parallel here. At the very moment that the revolt became consolidated and started turning from revolution into sort of um, consolidated state power with a lot of sort of um, direct and indirect influence of the bourgeoisie. So in some ways this very moment in which this bourgeois revolution is instantiated is a moment of sort of the ending of the revolt from below and the turning outward in military campaigns, both against the countryside and turning this into sort of a colonial war and wars of empire. And I see direct parallels here with first Cromwell's and then William of Orange's Irish campaigns where, again, sort of bourgeois consolidation immediately turns into empire building at the same time that sort of the uh, the from below aspects of the revolts are either toned down or sort of incorporated or smashed. I see similar patterns in the French um, revolutions with Napoleon's Egyptian campaigns and sort of the turning of sort of revolutionary energy into empire building uh, energies. And I think that is a, a crucial but understudied dimension of bourgeois revolutions. And I think the Dutch revolt gives a very early, maybe a bit messy, but very strong in the end example of this pattern. Following on from that last point, how did the Dutch colonial empire take shape during and after the revolt? And how important were the colonies for the future economic development of the Netherlands? The colonial ventures take shape relatively um, early. So by the um, by 1588, 
the Dutch had renounced all the attempts to find a foreign ruler to act as sort of the governing uh, head of state. The Dutch Republic unwittingly had come about. The um, Spanish crown launched a major attempt to once again crush this by sending out the Armada fleet, but uh, it's a giant fleet uh, um, uh, to both reconquer the Netherlands and to wage a campaign against England. But uh, for various reasons, this um, both uh, military and um, due to storms and bad weather, that sort of Armada turned into a miserable failure, which opened the seas then for the newly established Dutch Navy to start bringing the war onto the seas and uh, onto sort of the major trade routes of the uh, of the Iberians. And the Dutch captured that moment both in terms of state initiatives and in terms of private initiatives. So in the 1590s already, there were various private initiatives to gain a foothold in the Asian um, trade, but also to capture several islands along the West African coast, including slave trading islands and sugar producing islands to establish a presence in the um, in the Atlantic. By the late 1590s, the state swung behind these initiatives because it recognized that this was a major possibility both to fund the state by sort of colonial ventures and to cut through the funding of the Spanish state, which to a very heavy extent relied on silver imports and other forms of trade with the Atlantic with the Atlantic world. So the Dutch launched a um, concerted attack on these um, strongholds of the Iberians outside Europe, immediately also with the intention of colonization and sort of uh, this as as a new source of wealth. For this purpose, the Dutch East India Company was established in 1602, It took a bit longer to form a Dutch West India Company, but that came about in 1621, and both of those became important contenders for power in the Indian Ocean area and and in the Atlantic world, and and both of them with varying degrees and sort of um, at various moments, but started to, to gain uh, important uh, colonies, often by means genocidal and intersecting with with the slavery in which the Dutch became a major participant, etc. That brought in an important injection of wealth, which fed into the wealth, the already quite large wealth of the urban large merchants, which interestingly enough, they often funneled back either in new colonial enterprises or into the European trade or into sort of local commercial agriculture. So while the Dutch are conquering colonies abroad, there is also this craze for land reclamation within the low countries, which adds substantially to the arable land and which is funded to an important extent, also funded by the spoils of colonial ventures. So you get this circulation of capital from colonial initiatives back into sort of the uh, the home economy and vice versa, which I think becomes an essential aspect of the surge in um, capitalism in and around the low countries in the 17th century. And it's an essentially new aspect that 
is really sort of uh, helped by the creation of an independent state through the revolt. You've touched on this question in some of what you said before, but perhaps we could talk about it in a little more detail and specificity. How would you situate the revolt in relation to what later happened in England, in France or in the American colonies? And what implications does it have for the concept of bourgeois revolution? Uh, I think so. that concept of a bourgeois revolution is... Um is a very difficult one and it it has all sorts of connotations that I think are problematic, but I would want to rescue the concept. I think there is something there. And what I think is there is that um, there's all sorts of crises within the old political, social, economic order of uh, Europe in the 16th, 17th and 18th century, but these crises do not in and of themselves turn into sort of a capitalist direction. The fact that various states emerge that have sort of capitalist interest at their heart, I think becomes an important sort of pusher in this transition. And these states do not sort of, do all emerge out of major convulsions, wars and revolutions. But then the question becomes, how do they evolve out of these events? And there, I think I would take a, a slightly unorthodox approach, although I, I mentioned Neil Davidson. Um, there are, of course, m- many who, who have taken sort of unorthodox approaches to this as well. But what we really have to think about is the relationship, in my view, between from below and from above in these revolutions, the role of popular uprisings and the role of democracy in, within these revolutions, but also the, war of, the, the role of war and empire in these revolutions. And then it might be helpful to say that sort of there is, I think, a strong sort of classical historiography from the left that basically associates, basically says that there is the distinction between the classical bourgeois revolutions, which were bourgeois revolutions uh, from below, ranging from uh, sort of uh, maybe even the German peasant <laughs> war, but at least sort of the Dutch revolt until uh, un- until the French Revolution. And then you get the bourgeois revolutions from above, like the Italian Risorgimento or the Meiji res- Restoration in Japan or the, the um, Bismarckian transformation of the, of, the German, um, of the German state. So the classical bourgeois revolutions are revolutions from below, and then there's this other element that very strongly associates the bourgeois revolution with the democratic revolution. Now, I think that sort of that is an anachronism in so many ways, and it grants the bourgeoisie too much <laughs> historically. The outcome of these events nowhere is sort of a democratic state in any meaningful sense. They are sort of um, creations of top-down ruling class states with sort of, at best, an element of democracy there. There is sort of a democratic urge that can be seen in the uprisings from below, but democracy is, um, but it's very hard to see democracy as sort of the defining program for those, except for, of course, in a sort of a very general sense that the people should have a say in how they're governed. And that is that is important in its own right. But the way I would would see this is that sort of the the uh, the immense fissures that emer- emerge into sort of the, um, uh, the the fabric of the feudal order and divisions within these states and their permanent warfare 
create openings in which mass rebellion from below, partly driven by sort of aspirations to gain a say in politics, partly driven by religion, partly driven by sort of economic uh, social economic motives that where these can sort of erupt and have major a major impact on political life. You see these revolt littered through Europe in many many different moments, and at certain moments they they coalesce into sort of rebellions that are more or less national or semi-national or sort of region-wide. What happens in what is usually then described as sort of the classical bourgeois revolutions is that these rebellions develop into major challenges of the existing state. The bourgeois element in those, ironically, I would say, very often is not in sort of the rebellion or the revolution itself, but in sort of partly riding that wave and partly suppressing it and turning it into something uh, something else. So the moment where there's a sort of a real bourgeois turn, I would say, in these popular rebellions is the moments of consolidations of a new state, which very often is a moment that is sort of not sort of the moment of a democratic revolution, but it's, but it's very opposite. It's the moment of closing off the influence from below on this process of uh, re- rebellion. And in, in some ways, I'd, I'd like to borrow um, Régis Debré's <laughs> phrase of the revolt within the revolt. In, in, in some ways, sort of the bourgeois element, I would say, is the counter-revolution within the revolution. So it, it keeps the shell of the revolution, but transforms it into basically something else. And a defeat of popular mobilization is a crucial moment of that. And the emergency that allows sort of the curtailing or smashing of popular rebellion very often is external war, in which sort of and in, in these external wars, it is the state that really comes into its own. And I think that is a pattern that is there for the Dutch revolt, for the English revolution, for the French revolution, for the American war of uh, independence. And well, being provocative, one could even say that there is sort of this element in um, the Haitian revolution as well, which goes from its sort of very radical stage to uh, also a period of external and in- internal consolidation. So that is, I think, that that, that is a um, shift of emphasis in how we read the uh, bourgeois revolution. But um, but I think if, if we would want, and I, I, I would... I've argued that this is the case. If we want to see the Dutch revolt as a bourgeois revolution, it has to be in this um, in, in, in this sense, because it starts as a disparate sort of series of revolts and opposition movements from very different social classes, but it coalesces into a certainly non-democratic state, but a state controlled by merchant uh, merchant elites with a very sort of ambitious agenda for reshaping the world internally, sort of within the, the low countries and uh, and externally in terms of sort of uh, how it approaches the building of empire and sort of the usages of um, slavery, subjection and colonization for its, for its aims. As a final question, perhaps drawing together some of the different strands of what we've been discussing, what was the wider significance of the Dutch revolts and the Dutch Republic that came out of it for the history of capitalism and the history of the international state system leading up to the present day? Um, I think the Dutch revolt and the sort of ensuing period of sort of um, a very strong sort of Dutch 
presence in European politics and uh, the, the European sort of uh, European expansion and European economy has a very long-lasting effect on uh, transforming the world, but only in relationship. I mean, it's it's not that sort of from this very small region of Europe suddenly um, everything else emanates, but it becomes a point in consolidating an ongoing transformation of social relations. It becomes a stepping stone for the um, consolidation of bourgeois rule in uh, in England, in a literal sense, in that the sort of the the monarch brought in to do this consolidation in 1688 is William III of Orange, right? So it it plays its role in a far wider constellation of forces. But within that constellation of forces, I think that the, the Dutch for the 17th century provided a model, and people in the 17th century referred to that as a model of how a commercial state could be organized. It showed that such a commercial state could be a militarily strong and successful state. It introduced a new and nefarious forms of empire and colonization in the sense that rather than aggrandizing enterprises for a monarchical state, sort of here really sort of colonization became an enterprise for profit. It stimulated, therefore, also the emergence of sort of new new forms of calculative logic. By the 1650s, you have tracts arguing for the use of slavery and creation of slave-based plantation colonies, which basically produced arithmetic arguments saying, uh, well, if you invest a capital of 5,000 in this enterprise, how quickly will you become uh, will you become uh, uh, rich? So a very nakedly <laughs> argued sort of calculative motivation for colonization and state policy that certainly has a big influence on how other sort of statesmen in the rest of Europe um, reason, but also really changed them. Um, the rules of the game, both for colonizers and, and for the colonized. So that is a crucial aspect of this legacy. There is, of course, the long literature that, uh, well, whatever we can think of, uh, well, we, can, we, we cannot go here into these enormous debates uh, between Brenner and uh, Wallerstein and Arrighi over what is the prime mover of capitalist development. But I do think that sort of, what is created in the Dutch Republic is a new shape in which colonial revenue is funneled back into agrarian capitalism and vice versa, that that creates new patterns of accumulation, that that brings the Dutch Republic enormous wealth and status within Europe and also makes it a financial center within uh, Europe that uh, even when it lost its uh, sort of elevated position among European states meant that it was the home of major sort of colonial companies, major financial firms that bankrolled various sort of ventures uh, outside the Dutch Republic, bankrolled large parts of the British attempts at industrialization, uh, as well as its colonization attempts in the Caribbean. So you get a sense of here some important tipping points in world history to which the 
Dutch revolt and the Dutch Republic that ensues from it, for better or for worse, actually, I think in many ways for worse, <laughs> um, then plays um, a significant role. There is, of course, also this other element, which is the suppressed part of the Dutch revolt, which is also the most forgotten part, which is that aspect of popular rebellion reshaping European uh, European politics. And I think that is the other dimension, rightly so, for which progressives have historically tended to celebrate these events in a sense by saying the current order was not created by sort of uh, a history of uh, peaceful progressions actually popular rebellion redrew the map of the, the the map of the world and i think that aspect remains important but it needs to be tethered to a very precise thinking about then the relationship between popular rebellion and the states that emerged out of that. And there, I think there's a powerful radical tradition of thinking about these revolutions that, that uh, deserves recu- recuperation. And, and well, I referred earlier to the work of Eric Kuttner, who with all its problems when it comes to his sort of thesis that hunger drove the re- revolt, I think was very astute in seeing lower-class rebellion, independent lower-class rebellion, as a major driver in these events. And interestingly enough, I think Kuttner's work fits into a small tradition of works that emerged in the 1930s that was a bit apart from the mainstream Marxist writing at the time, which was very focused on, well, in, in, also in connection to the... Um, popular front policies of the of the common turn at the time was very much sort of indebted to this idea of the bourgeois revolution as the democratic revolution, as the progressive bourgeoisie taking power. And against that notion, I think there was a minor undercurrent of still very important works that emphasized that um, lower class rebellion drove these revolts and that the role of the bourgeoisie partly was sort of not riding this wave, but also riding this wave and suppressing it at the same time. So you can think of Kuttner doing that, but um, but also uh, Daniel Guérin's work on uh, what he called Les Bras Nus, the, the naked arms during the French Revolution, the poorest of the poor in the French Revolution, I certainly count within that C.L.R. James's work on the Haitian Revolution, where it's the masses, both in uh, in Saint Domingue and in uh, Paris, that are the main actors and that real that are railed against both the forces of sort of uh, feudal reaction and the bourgeoisie and its uh, newly forming state. So you have these works emerging in the 1930s from more critical sort of more marginal areas of the of Marxist historiography, but co- that contain really crucial insights, I think, in the radicalism of these moments of revolt and help us to dissociate that radicalism from the repressive nature of the states that came out of that. And I know that this is, currently, this is a major debate when looking at the... Um, at the American War of Independence and the American Revolution of the 18th century, where some have come out with very strong arguments saying that uh, we should discard any sort of legacy of these events because it was only reactionary. And uh, well, Gerald Horns's argument on the American counter-revolution 
And I, th I think sort of what that latches on to is exactly that moment of counter-revolution within a revolution. And for that reason, this is important work. But what it throws out is then the fact that the revolution itself was not made by these people who then consolidated their power of the, uh, over the state, but who were very often only the reluctant tail-enders of these, uh, these events, but that the in initial outbursts were moments of true radicalism with very different visions of what the future would, uh, could potentially uh, um, uh, hold implicitly or explicitly part of them. And I think recapturing those sort of moments of radicalism also is one of the important things that uh, historians of yeah. the left have uh, always tried to do and should continue to do. Many thanks to Pepin Brandon for that account of the Dutch Revolt. His book, War, Capital and the Dutch State, is available from Haymarket Books. This episode of Long Reads was supported by Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. One audiobook you can buy from Pluto is Radical Intimacy by Sophie K. Rosa. Rosa takes aim at a so-called wellness industry that ignores rising poverty rates, state violence and the mental health crisis. She talks about alternative ways of living that can generate new forms of intimacy. You can pre-order Radical Intimacy now from tiny.one slash jacobin.